um, in, in observing what Jesus has done for us at the end of the service. If you, um, in, in way of preparation, if you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, we just ask that you let the bread pass. But if you have placed your faith in Christ, when we get to that point at the end of the service, we'd invite you, whether you're a member here or not, or whether you're visiting here with us, um, we would invite you, if you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, please join with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper at the end of the service and really worship him by doing that. Um, if you have children, obviously we leave it up to your discernment whether or not they've made a, a profession of faith and believed in him. But we are excited to be able to celebrate Christ together, and we're looking forward to that, so we'd invite you to do that with us as well. Um, go ahead and turn your Bibles. As Aaron mentioned, we're continuing in our book on the, the miracles and parables about Jesus Christ. Now, the whole point of why we are looking at the miracles and parables of Jesus isn't just because we want to be wowed and we like great stories, although we do love the stories. It's because the stories about Jesus all point to who he is. They point to who he is as king and what it looks like to live as part of his kingdom. And I think as a church, as a people, as, as disciples, as Christians, we need a bigger view of who Jesus is so that we are, we are amazed by him and that we live our lives for him as disciples of Jesus. So I, my, I hope in my prayer this morning is that is the case today. So turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. It's a very well-known parable, the parable of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And contrary to, as we've mentioned last week, popular flannel graphs, this is not about a little boy and his faith in Jesus. This is all about who Jesus is. So let's, let's read this miracle together. This is God's holy inspired word. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people might eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I pray, Father, we pray that we would see Jesus for who he is. God, I pray that in this very familiar parable, we would not be too familiar with who you are, with Jesus, who you are as the Son of God. I pray that our eyes would see you clearly for who you are as the bread of life. I pray that we would see that you feed us, that you are the one who nourishes us, that we rely on you. We need you like we need our daily bread. God, I pray for all of us who have been distracted that we would feast on you this morning. God, I pray for all of us who are weary and tired and hungry. I pray that we would feed on you this morning. God, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord, who have been self-sufficient and trusting in ourselves, Lord, I pray that we would set aside that food that doesn't satisfy and that we would be satisfied in you. God, I pray that you would give grace to all of us as we hear. I pray that you would give grace as I preach your word. May I speak what you have. May we hear what you have for us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, bread today is a really good food. In fact, this morning as I was preparing the message I don't know, about four in the morning, I got up and I was just really ravenous for bread. I've been thinking about bread all week, so I was like, man, that would be really good today. And um, had a slice of warm Pepperidge Farm blueberry bread and kind of watched the, the butter melt into it and the honey, and it was, it's a great experience. I love bread, and it's, it's, it's good. And maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you're like that. Maybe you enjoy a good baguette with some olive oil or maybe mozzarella or maybe some cheese or... Maybe you're a little extreme. I saw a commercial recently. I thought it was a spoof. It wasn't. Uh, my wife and I saw this commercial, and there's Oprah Winfrey, and she goes, I love bread. And she goes, for me, it is the joy. I thought, whoa, that's, that's a pretty extreme view about bread. It's the joy. Oh, boy, that's, that's a little in love with bread. For most of us, whether we love bread or not, um, it's something that we can choose whether we eat. Some people can't eat bread or choose not to eat bread for dietary reasons, um, we, we can pick and choose what we eat in today's society. So for us, it's a little hard sometimes to relate to when Jesus talks about bread and, and bread being essential. Sometimes it's hard for us to relate to because we don't have to have bread. We don't have to eat it. But the way we treat food, the way we think about bread, it's a relatively new idea that most of the world in ages past they couldn't relate to. You know, if in ages past the question was asked, what do you work for? The answer would probably be to eat. Today, the first thing you think about is what do you work for? Well, so I can enjoy life, so I can enjoy my family, so I can get things. You don't, you don't normally make the connection. Most of us, now some do, but most do not make the connection with, I work just so that I can eat, and I'm hoping that I get to eat. You know, this was a very subsistence, agrarian society that they existed day by day. They typically got paid a day's work at the end of that day for, the, for what they had done, and then they went and they bought bread. For most of history, people worked so that they could eat and they ate what they could get and they didn't have choices in food and, and typically most cultures relied on one or two staples and you know, even as late as the 1840s and in Ireland in 1845, they had gotten to the point where over half the population existed or subsisted almost solely on potatoes and if you were read history, you know that when there was a potato blight they had a massive famine and thousands of people died as a result because they, they relied on potatoes. Well, in this culture, they relied on, on bread. 
it's still a relatively new idea that we have such luxury of being able to choose what we eat and so but if you don't get that then you won't get this parable about how it's I mean this miracle about how essential bread was for them and the, and you need to capture something of the the essential nature of bread and, and even as late as the 1960s it was food shortages were still an issue in most of the world I was reading an article from National Geographic about food supply and food shortages from I think 2014 and they were, were talking about how, um, even as late as 1959, a third of the world relied on, at least a third of the world relied on wheat so that they could have bread. And a good portion of the world relied on rice. But a third of the world relied on, on wheat. And the primary component of people's diets it wasn't keeping up with the supply. And people were going hungry. But there was this guy who, through selective breeding, his name was, um, I think it was Norman Borlaug. He was an American biologist. He created a dwarf variety of wheat that it put more energy into creating edible kernels than it did in the stems. And so it revolutionized a third of the world's yields. And in a few short years, the the yields doubled. And the continent's population increased by 60% in Asia. And grain prices fell because of this man's work. And, And he ended up winning the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970. And if you know that or not, if you look back and see some of the history of Nobel Peace Prize winners, it's really fascinating. But he won the Nobel Peace Prize for re-engineering something that would actually make bread. And, and the caption, the citation read of, of Norman Borlaug when he was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, it read, more than any person, this is, this is what they nominated him for, more than any person of this age, he helped provide bread for a hungry world. He, he won a, a peace prize because he helped provide bread for a hungry world. And I, and I hope that gives us a little bit of the context of, of when Jesus is talking about bread, when he gives people food, why it meant so much for them. It meant a lot that Jesus would feed them. This was no small thing. They had probably gone all day without food. They'd been following Jesus around, especially in the region of Galilee. They would have relied on really two staples, bread and fish. And so he provides both in this parable here. So if you could provide bread in that context, you could solve a lot of problems. You would be the the ancient equivalent of of Norman Borlaug or even better because you can provide food, something that they, they had to work every day just to eat. And so that's why they reacted to Jesus the way that they did. But I think the main idea of this miracle is for the early readers and for us to see is that, that Jesus truly feeds people. Jesus truly feeds people. But, but maybe not in the way that they thought. Maybe not in the way that you and I can tend to think even too. So it's clear. He does a miracle and he feeds people. But what's important is, is to see why he feeds people. I think God's going to reveal that to us through this miracle. You know, I provide food for my children because I love them, because I, I actually want them to grow, want their brains to develop. I, I care about them, so I provide, I provide food for them. For Jesus, in this miracle, he's providing for the children of Israel. And I think there's at least four kind of important reasons we're going to look at. And, and we're really going to spend the majority of our time just on the first one. So don't, don't panic when I say there's four reasons why or four ideas why why Jesus provides food for them. But the first and really the, the main theme throughout the first 15 verses really is this. It's that, it's that Jesus feeds people so that they see him. Jesus feeds people for a reason. He feeds people so that they see him. 
He doesn't just feed them to satisfy their hunger. He doesn't just feed them to meet their material needs. He doesn't just feed them to give them what they want. He feeds them so that they will see him. You know, I wonder when we look to Jesus for provision, do we look for the things he gives us or do we look for him? I think that this this miracle is meant to provoke those kinds of questions in us. You know, aside from the, the... the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just think about the importance of this miracle. Aside from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. That alone should give an idea of the significance that the Gospel writers placed on this, that the importance for us today as well, that we need to see Jesus, that he feeds us so that we see him. We learn from the Gospels of Mark and Luke, this account occurred after the disciples returned from their missionary journey. Jesus, if you have read the Gospels, he sent them out in pairs, and he told them to go out. And do you remember how he told them to go out? He told them, go out, but don't take anything with you. Don't take any provisions. Don't take a, don't take, just take a staff, don't take a bag, don't take any money, and don't take any bread. And they, they had just come back prior to this, they'd just come back from those missionary journeys And they had come back and they had seen how God amazingly provided for them. And they saw God did amazing things through them. They were able to to pray for the sick and the sick were healed. They were able to cast out demons. Mark and Luke and Matthew, they all record as well that not only have they just come back from that, they've also come back from a sad circumstance that, that Herod had killed John the Baptist. He beheaded him at the request of his daughter-in-law, or really his wife, who hated him. And and Matthew gives us a clue that this this news hit Jesus hard. In Matthew 14, it's a parallel account of this this miracle. It says that, that as soon as Jesus heard the news about John the Baptist being killed, he went off by himself in a boat to a remote area to be alone. And so the setting for this is that Jesus and the disciples are likely grieving. He takes them and he says, hey, guys, let's go and let's go be in a, in a lonely place and we'll just get some rest and recovery. And in and, and Mark 6, he writes, he says, then because so many people were coming and going, they didn't even have a chance to eat, he says to his disciples, he says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. That's, that's the context for this. And, and so they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. And then interestingly enough, though, John doesn't include those details. And there's a reason for that. You see, every... Every gospel writer has a theological intent in why they communicate the miracles of Jesus or the parables about Jesus. And, and John, he doesn't record it in chronological detail, but he gives a, makes a theological point right before this passage. In John 15, right prior to that, Jesus is explaining to them that, that all of the Old Testament scriptures in the Bible actually all point to Jesus. They're really all about him. And he writes in the chapter right before this in John 5, 39 and 40, he says, he says to the Jews, he says, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. But then he says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. Talking about all the Old Testament. He says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so really John is setting the stage for this miracle. And the question for the reader is, am I coming to him to find life? The question for us is, am I, am I, how do I see Jesus? Am I coming to Jesus to find life? Maybe you should ask yourself that question this morning. What, do I see Jesus' provisions as more important than Jesus? 
What do I come to him for? What do I primarily come to Jesus for in my daily times when I cry out to him in prayer or when I'm aware of my need for him? What am I primarily aware of my need for of him or the things he can get? Well, Jesus told them just a couple verses before this miracle. He says, if you believed Moses, he says, you would believe me. And then he says something that would have been shocking to them. He says, for he wrote about me. You think, what in the world? How, Jesus, Moses wrote about you, but I, I've read the Old Testament. It doesn't say the name of Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament. But that gives us an idea how to read Scripture, really, to read all of Scripture. He says, but if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And so John wants the reader to see a clear comparison between Jesus and Moses. That Moses, who was God's instrument of deliverance, really is pointing forward to Jesus, who is God's deliverance. That Moses, the one who who brought the children of Israel manna in the desert, really is foreshadowing of the fact that Jesus is the one who brings manna in the wilderness. And interestingly enough, the wording here about him going over to solitary places, similar to word for wilderness. It says in verse 2, And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. But the signs that Jesus were doing were meant to point to him. It doesn't say they followed him because they realized if you could do these things, then you are the very presence of God and we need God's presence because all throughout the Old Testament it points to our need for the presence of God. But they don't say that. It says that they saw the things he was doing on the sick. They, were, they thought he was this really cool miracle worker. They wanted to see what he could do. That's really no different from today in, in, in some respects. You know, sometimes it takes the form of the idea if you believe enough that you'll be guaranteed good health and great wealth and God's obliged to heal you and make you rich if you have enough faith. You ever heard that idea? That's a heretical idea. It's a heretical idea because Jesus here is, is actually saying, no, I, I, I am what you need most. People back then, they followed Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick in a similar form. And we follow him because of what he can do for us. We miss the point. We miss seeing Jesus for who he is. Later in the chapter, people persisted in following Jesus back across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus went from here and says, you know, he kind of escapes away because he knew that they were trying to make him king. And so he goes away. He sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. We're not going to get into what he does in the middle, but um, just briefly, he sends the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. And then when they're a few miles out and he's by himself, they get in some rough patch of water. Jesus walks across the water, meets his disciples, and immediately they're at the other side. And then it comes back to this whole this whole illustration about bread and comes from, well, back to this whole idea about bread. And you wonder, what, what in the world is, is, is John doing? John's trying to so, show that, that Jesus is to be seen for who he is, not for what he can do for us. And so in, in verse 26, in John six twenty six, right after this miracle and the other miracle walking in the water, Jesus answered the people who came to find him. They, they, they tried to figure out, where did Jesus go? And so they go to the other side of the sea. So they've been with Jesus all night. Jesus sends them away. They go and they follow him the next day. They're trying to find him on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus answers them and they, he says, Truly, truly, John six twenty six. look in your Bibles. He says, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, meaning not because you 
understood the meaning of the signs, saw their meaning. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus here is correcting the notion that that it's good to follow him because of what he gets you physically, materially. You know, in this largely subsistence culture, they wanted somebody who could fill their bellies. That was understandable. They wanted Jesus because he could give them something they had to work hard for otherwise. They continued to follow him, though, because of what he could do for them. And when Jesus doesn't do what they want, we see later on in, in, the, in the chapter, chapter 6, down to verse 64, 65, they end up leaving him because they realize that he's not going to get them what they want. But today, you know, people continue to follow Jesus because of what he can do for them. And when Jesus doesn't get him what they want, they can be frustrated. That's why when we preach the gospel, we never want to preach a gospel message of, hey, if you have a need, Jesus came to fill your need. If you have um, a God-shaped hole in your heart, well, those are kind of true, but um, Jesus didn't come just to make you happy, just to make you feel good, just to make you healthy, didn't make you wealthy, to make you feel better. Jesus came to give you himself. He came so that you might see him for who he is. But it can, it can take a subtle form of the mentality, and I think a lot of us can have this mentality at times. You know, if we can, we can live day by day. If we live righteously, if I do good works, then we can kind of feel entitled that then God will, you know, if we're good Christians, if we do good works, if we, if we live the way we're supposed to, that we can feel like we deserve for good things to happen to us. You ever, you ever, you ever feel that way? I, I've lived that way. You ever, you ever lived that way? We can feel like, you know, I deserve for good things to happen. And then we can be perplexed or angry at God when we experience different things. When we experience difficulty or hardship or suffering or severe debilitating illness. You ever struggled there thinking, well, God must not love me because this is happening to me. God must be displeased with me because... I'm not doing well. God must be angry at me because I don't, I don't feel good. God must be angry at me because we're not doing well financially. God must be angry at me because this is happening. And, and really, that's the subtle way of falling prey to the same temptation they did back then of seeing Jesus for what he could do for us and thinking that's what he came to do was to meet our physical material needs only. Now, the good news is Jesus does provide for his followers, and we see that here. But that's, that's not why he provides for He provides for us that we see him for who he is, that we see that Jesus came to truly feed us. You know, there's a feelings of anger that can come from thinking that if we're good Christians, we deserve not to struggle and we deserve to not suffer. You ever been there? It's that, that connection we can make at times that, you know, God, God must be angry with us and punishing us if we're not healed or if we remain poor. And then you remember for a minute, wait a minute, Jesus was always poor in his life. That, that can't be true. But it, it's a subtle form of following Jesus because of what he can do for us. In verse 3, look down your Bibles. It tells us Jesus, he went up on the mountain and, and he sees this crowd. And he goes up on the mountain, sits down with his disciples, and, and, then, and then he's hoping to rest. They were grieving. They needed rest, but no rest comes. Jesus, he lifts up his eyes. He sees this large crowd coming towards him. And he's kind of messing with Philip a little bit. You know, he's kind of messing with Philip. You know, he, he asked Philip the question of, hey, Philip, where are we going to buy bread so these people can eat? But he wants to feed them, even though he's tired and he's grieving, because he has compassion on them, it tells us in, in Mark chapter 6 as well. He had compassion on them. They were like sheep without a shepherd. 
he saw they didn't have anybody to feed them. They needed Jesus to feed them. And, and that's what we're meant to see as well, is that, that we need Jesus to feed us. That we're like sheep without a shepherd, without Christ. And then John gives us another detail that is kind of out of place in one sense, but he kind of gives us this aside, and he tells us, look down in verse 4, he tells us that the Passover, the Feast of Jews, was at hand. Now, why is he doing that? John here is making a lot of theological connections. He's making a connection to Moses and man at the beginning. Now he's making a connection to what? To Jesus and the Passover feast. And then he's going to show that Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of the Passover feast. Jesus is the one who supplies the feast. He's the one who feeds the people. Look down in verses 5 and 6. After he asked Philip where we buy bread so people eat, um, Philip's a little perplexed. But he shouldn't have been. He was testing Philip because he wanted to see if Philip would know who Jesus was. You see, Philip had gone out in twos with all other disciples, not taking bread on a missionary journey, and yet God had provided all that he needed. And so that's why he's testing Philip. He's saying, Philip, do you see those things you did in my name? Do you see that when you healed people, that when you cast out demons, that when I provide, that when you were provided for, that ultimately I was providing for you? And do you know that I can provide for you today? Do you know that I can provide for these people of myself without any help? But he doesn't get it, just like none of us do, or most of us don't at times. Look down in verse 7. Philip goes, he says, well, you gotta, he's a little exasperating. He's like, 200 denarii wouldn't buy these people even just a little bit. It would have been like eight months worth of work. Denarii was a little bit around the day's wages. And so he's saying, you know, if, if we were going to spend eight months of work, so put it in contextualize, if whatever, if you if, take for granted, I don't know, the average salary is 50000 30000 whatever. So if it's fifty, so $30,000 is not going to give them just a little bit to eat? They won't even touch, scratch the surface, Jesus. There's no way that we can feed these people. Did you forget that we don't really have a permanent place to stay, that there's no income generation happening here? Andrew wasn't much better. He takes inventory of the food on hand, and he says, well, here's this little boy, and he's got some five loaves and two fishes. And, but, you know, what's that going to do? He didn't have any more faith. The question is, when you see Jesus, when we are walking through these miracles and parables, when you see Jesus, do you see him for who he is? Or just what he can do for you. And if you think about it, Jesus could have done this miracle in any sort of way. He didn't have to provide food from loaves and, and fishes. He could have suddenly made a lot of money appear, right? He did that before with Peter. He says, Peter, go and, you know, to pay the temple tax. You go and pull a fish out of the water. When you get that fish, you're going to find two denarii. One for me, one for, one for you, and, and go and pay the taxes. He could have made money appear. He, he made everything. He could have instantly made all the people's bellies full so they didn't even need to eat. He could have provided a whole amount of food just to appear right before them, but he didn't do that because he wanted people to see him for who he was. He wanted them to see that he's not limited by the, the little that man sees. He's not limited by lack. He's not limited by our lack of faith. So Jesus tells everybody to sit down, and John writes there are about 5,000 in number. Mark, Mark tells us there are about 5,000 men. Matthew clarifies it even further. He says there were about 5,000 men, not including women and children. So there's, there's probably like 10,000 to 15,000 people here. Could you imagine if you came home from work or you know, your spouse came home and said, Hey, honey, by the way, I, I've got the city of Greer with me and they're coming for dinner. 
what do we have on hand? <laughs> You're like, if we spent eight months of our income, it wouldn't even scratch the surface. You know, I can empty the pantry out, but nobody, there's still going to be a snack. We, we, can, we can lose sight of just the miraculous nature of this. We, it can become this, this stale old good story. Oh, isn't that nice? Jesus feeds the 5,000 men, 10,000 people. We can forget just how amazing this is, especially in an agrarian society where they were subsistence and they required bread daily and these people were ravenously hungry. And Jesus, he wasn't concerned. He's able to provide that's meant to give us faith that he can provide for us. That he does care about the physical needs of people. He, he does care about that. It's not primarily about that, but he does care about the physical needs. And he can provide. He's able to do far more than we can ask or imagine. And he's not concerned. But verse 11, 11 look down your Bibles. He tells us Jesus doesn't do anything mystical. He takes the bread, he breaks it, and he gives thanks. Now what's that a beautiful picture of? It's a foreshadowing that John's already given us a little hint about, about the Passover and and. The final Passover that Jesus would share when he broke bread and he gave thanks and he distributes it to his disciples. And so we're meant to get that imagery of Jesus breaking bread and giving it to people. And he can supply innumerable amounts of people through the bread that he gives. We don't know when the miracle occurred. Maybe it occurred in the hands of Jesus as he was giving bread and fish to his disciples, each basket. Maybe that occurred then. Or maybe it occurred when he gave each of them little pieces in the basket. And they're like, I don't know, Jesus. But they kept breaking it off and there kept being more. We don't know how. And that's not really the point is not how. But the point is who. Who. Who Jesus is. You see, Jesus is, in especially the context of John, he is showing that He's the one that when, when Moses told the children of Israel that God was going to provide manna every day. Now think about that. Why did Moses provide, um, have God, or why did God provide manna just day by day? It's that the people would remain reliant on him. So they would look to him. So they would trust in him every day. They wouldn't get complacent. They wouldn't get comfortable. Jesus is giving bread here. But he's, he's giving bread to them to point to who he is. And he wants them to see that they need to rely on him Day by day, moment by moment. In this large crowd, it was very hungry. It says something remarkable. It says they had as much as they wanted. And they were filled completely. You know, they were stuffed. And, you know, they, they, they had that, that post-Thanksgiving feeling. You know, Thanksgiving's coming up in a couple months. You know, they, they were filled to the full. They had more than they wanted. And boy, if somebody's giving free food, I mean, who doesn't like that? They ate all they could. And Jesus says, to prove a point, he says, go in amongst the crowd. I want you to collect the leftovers. And so the disciples, they gather up 12 baskets of bread. And finally you think, well, maybe now the people understand just who Jesus was and they, is when they see what's really happening. You know, after all, if you've seen all the healings that Jesus did and his casting out demons, he creates all this food, you might suspect that he's no ordinary man. But these people still miss seeing him for who he is. John tells us in verse 14, look in your Bibles. They're starting to make a connection, but they make a wrong connection in one sense. They make partial connection. Verse 14, they're thinking, maybe, maybe he's the prophet. So they refer back to this prophecy of Moses. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses had told them, he says, 
He says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so when they say, maybe this is the prophet, they're right. But they missed what that meant. They thought that Jesus was going to give them deliverance from Rome and give them what they needed and give them physical food like Moses gave them manna. Now Jesus is going to give them manna every day. They don't have to work anymore. They've got Jesus, their lottery ticket. And so we see in verse 15, it says they want to come and take Jesus by force and make him their king. They wanted him to rule as the new king of utter Israel, to throw off the Roman government so that to deliver them and make them a nation great again, you know, make Israel great again. That was kind of what they're doing. They're, they're, they're hoping in Jesus to be their king, but their earthly king. But Jesus will have nothing to do with that. Our satisfaction, our hope, is not that we have a physical king or ruler to deliver us, but that we have Jesus, the ultimate deliverer, who, who rules over a true and lasting kingdom, a true and lasting nation who truly feeds us. You might be thinking, well, why not? Why, why didn't Jesus just become the Messiah right then? Why didn't he just rule? Because couldn't he have done those things? Couldn't he have set up an earthly kingdom? Couldn't he have just continued to feed them every day? Well, the answer is, yeah, he could have done those things, but it would have actually been the worst thing for them. He didn't want people to follow him to get what they thought was best for them. He wanted people to follow him because they needed him for who he was as the son of God. He wanted people to seek him for him. He wanted people to see that the greatest need was his very presence, the very presence of God. What they needed was to be reconciled with God and he was the one who would reconcile them, give them life. What they needed was not physical life that was um, the metaphor of bread, but what they needed is something more than that. He wanted people to see that he's not a means to give them their idols. Otherwise, they would have stayed trapped in idolatry. If he just made himself king, they were idolizing being deliverance. They thought that they were making their country great would, would be what they really needed. And Jesus says, no, that's not what you need. You need me. And he wanted to see he's a better Moses. He's a better Moses. He's, he's the one who came to deliver them from their sin, to deliver them from captivity, to deliver themselves. Not just give them physical deliverance, but Jesus came to deliver them from the impossible, to deliver them from slavery and bondage to their own sin, to deliver them from the, the just punishment for their sins that they deserve, God's wrath. He came to, to be their true deliverer. He's the better Moses. He feeds people where there's no food. He feeds people in the wilderness. He needed them to see that he is the bountiful provider. He needed them to see that He's the source of our provision that he provides for himself, from himself, of himself. He needed them to see that his provision as well is not dependent on our work. And he wanted them to see that he feeds us far more than we can imagine. Who do you see Jesus as this morning? Jesus fills us and gives us far more than just what satisfies and the second important idea that we're going to see from this miracle is that Jesus feeds people spiritually. You're wondering, where do, where do, you, where do you get that? I don't see that in, in verses 1 to 15. Well, well, it's not there. Skip down your Bibles to verse 26. See, John is, he is giving us a theology here about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. And so really, all of John chapter 6 is all about Jesus feeding people. 
And so look down in your Bibles in verse 26 to 33. We're going to read it together. It says, Jesus, he's interpreting the miracle for the people. He answers, he says, truly, truly, I say, you're seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Don't labor for the food that perishes. Good question for us. What are we laboring for? He says, but, back to your Bible, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his, his seal. God the Father has set his authority, his seal on Jesus as the one to bring eternal life. Moses fed the people in the wilderness, but ultimately God fed them. You know, the manna, it kept them alive. It physically kept them alive. But what he's saying is, you see this miracle, what you're missing is the fact that I am the one who gives you eternal life. Not just life, day-by-day life, but I give you eternal life. But they didn't make that connection. The people in Moses' time, they didn't make that connection. It says that actually the whole first generation, that every day they feasted on the manna that God gave, they still failed to trust and believe in God for their life. And what happened in, back in, in Joshua's time is basically that the entire first generation had to die because of their unbelief and couldn't enter into the promised land because entry into the promised land was not just by doing the law. It wasn't just by obedience. It was by looking to God to feed them spiritually. So Jesus tells them, he says, what you need is true bread. You need, you need more than, than physical life. And look down in your Bibles in, in, in chapter six there. They say to Jesus, they say, well, well, Jesus, well, give us a sign. And you think, well, hang on. What about the hubris of those people? Didn't they just have the sign of Jesus feeding 5,000? And, and Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. I'm going to give you eternal life. And they say, well, hey, well, sure, you did it already. Do it again. Come on. Come on, do it again. Give us, give us another sign. You know, give us another sign, Jesus. Show us more proof. Because, you know, that's not really good enough for us. And then Jesus says, you know, I, I'm, I, I came to give you eternal life. And bread that will never run out. They say, well, what do we do that? How do we get that bread? What do we have to do? What kind of work do we have to do to get that bread? And sometimes for us as believers, that can be our question too. What kind of work do we have to do to get the bread that won't run out? And so we can, we can come to Jesus thinking that it's dependent upon our work. But look down in, in your Bibles in, in verse 27. He says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And they were saying, well, what kind of work do we have to do for that, Jesus? And, and they still miss the point, though. They say, what sign will you do? You know, our forefathers got manna in the desert. You gave us food the other day. Why not do it again? And Jesus says, you know, my, Moses didn't give you food. My father did. And so you're missing the fact that I am the one who gives food from myself. You know, bread gives us physical life, and so... Jesus wants them to see that he doesn't just give physical life, he gives all of life. He is the source of life. The question, though, for all of us is, do we look to him for our life? Do we look for him to feed us spiritually, to supply our very lives? Matthew 
Manna points to Jesus. Bread points to Jesus. All of the ancient signs that, that were performed in Moses' time, all that Moses wrote about, they all pointed forward to Jesus. And the third important idea we're going to see with this miracle is that Jesus himself is our food of life. The people were asking, how do we get this food? How do we do the work that gets this food for us? What do we do? Look down in, in John 6, 28-34. Jesus said to him, well, they, well, sorry, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So they're saying, Jesus says, well, work for the works that are going to give you eternal life. And then they misinterpret that. They think they actually have to do things to, to earn this eternal life. And so they say, what do we have to do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus turns things on their heads. And really, it's meant to function that way for us, too. Because we don't trust in our work. He says, he answers them in verse 29. Look in your Bibles or up on the screen. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see you believe? What, what work do you perform? And then verse 32, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's saying, I am the one who is the very bread of heaven. I came down from the Father, and I am the one who gives bread and life to the world. But they still don't get it. They say, sir, give us this bread always. Moses gave us bread, now you give us this bread. That's good, that's nice. Keep giving us this bread. But Jesus was saying, I'm the bread of life. Whoever believes in me eats of me. He wanted them to see that they truly needed him. If you really trust me, I'll nourish you. I'll give you eternal life. Do you see Jesus that way? Do you see that you really need him, not just for your physical provision, but for everything? Do you see that you need him to nourish you, to give you eternal life? Are you desperate for him? This morning um, was a terrible morning, for me at least. I don't know about for you. Uh, I, had a, I had a rotten morning. You ever have those rotten mornings? Sunday mornings are not easy. You know, there's this silly song. Now it's easy, easy like a Sunday morning. I can never relate to that song. I, I don't know what that means. Um, easy like a Sunday morning. What is that? If it's that easy, I don't want that, you know. Um, you know, this morning, though, I was aware of my desperate need for God. I think God gives us those times so that we can see that we, we need him for everything, for our breath, for our physical well-being, for all of life. You know, it, it, for my morning was relatively easy compared to what maybe what you guys experience, what some of you who suffer physically experience and have ongoing illnesses or ongoing financial difficulties or relational hardships. But in small part, why my morning was, was not so great was um, I, I've not slept well for like the last five nights. I think I've gotten like three, four hours sleep every night. And so cumulatively, I'm just like out of it. And then, and then this morning, you know, I got up early and, and I find that my computer has updated but not really. And it's hung in this perpetual state of updating. And it won't do anything for hours. And now I'm panicking. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And then I remembered, oh gosh, okay, fortunately, okay, we have this thing that syncs our files to the cloud. So I borrowed one of the kids' computers after a couple hours. And, and then I'm like, okay, fine. I can get back to work and I can, I can finish up my, my thoughts here. This is great. And then, and then I go to print my sermon and, and neither printer will work. Just minor inconveniences, but neither printer works. And so I'm really stressing out. And I was supposed to leave for, to come here. And then all of a sudden, um, my, my allergies started acting up. And I was hacking and coughing. I thought, there's no way that I'm going to be able to preach this morning because I can't stop hacking for like 30 minutes. I didn't stop hacking and coughing. 
And, and then I got dizzy and I thought, there's no way I can do this this morning. And then um, because of all of those things, um, I was, get this, and by the way, it's a confession, this is not okay, but I was 30 minutes late getting here. I didn't get here until like 10.30. That's astounding. I'm a pastor. I should, that should never happen. <laughs> all right? I, I, that should never be the case when I'm late to, what, the pastor is late to his own church? What in the world? You know, easy like a Sunday morning, right? Um, and, and I was thinking on the way over here as I was realizing that I'm a mess and that life's a mess and things don't always go the way I want. And I was realizing, thank you, God, because you're showing me that I'm utterly dependent. And, and I hope that's helpful for you to see. I hope you can relate to that. Now, don't, don't see there's a hall pass to get here 30 minutes late. But... Um, and I don't see it as a whole pass for myself either. But I do see it as God saying, Matt, you're weak. You need me. You rely on me. You don't rely on a printer. You don't rely on a computer. You don't rely on your health. You don't rely on all those other things. And what people think about you. And I think if God wanted me to share that with you, so that um, I didn't rely on, on your impression of me and, and how great I am. But I rely, man, my every breath, my physical well-being, everything, but my spiritual life, ultimately is where my hope is that I need Jesus to feed me spiritually and that he himself is my food. He's my bread. I don't need just my physical sustenance, but I need him to feed me spiritually. And then I need to see that he is my very food. That's the important thing, that I'm not living for this life, but I need to live in in awareness that he supplies my life. That that's where all of my life is found. That if I trust in Jesus, he will nourish me and I'll give, he'll give me eternal life. Well, look down your Bibles in verse um, 47 uh, of John chapter 6. Jesus says, truly, truly. Whenever, whenever you hear the Bible repeating itself like that, when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's like, pay attention, really, this is very true. This is the truth you need to get. This is the whole point of this miracle. Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, when he says, I say to you, he is using the kind of language of authority that only God uses in the Old Testament. He says, I am, and therefore he says things. Jesus says, his source of authority, he is the authority. I say to you, I'm the authority, and I say, whoever believes has eternal life. Are you sustained by that? Do you get that? Do you look to him for life? Does that nourish you? Look in verse 48. He says, I am. Using Old Testament language again. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate in the wilderness and died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. You thought it was manna. You thought this bread is most important to you. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. He says, this, and he's pointing to himself. He's referring to himself. This is the bread of heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. Don't don't fall prey to that, that silly argument that Jesus never claimed to be God. He just didn't do it like we do in a Western language. But no one claims to have authority to be able to say to you that whoever believes is eternal life. No one in the Old Testament would have said, I'm the bread of life. No one would have said, I'm that bread who comes down from heaven. If you eat of me, you won't die, except for God himself. Jesus is making truth claims. Look in verse 51. He says, I am the living bread. I'm the manna you need, is what he says. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. 
if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. That was scandalous. He says, then the Jews disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his own flesh to eat? Does he want us to eat him like a cannibal? They, they understood what he was saying, but they missed it. They missed that he, he was talking about spiritual food. He himself is our spiritual food. He says, truly, truly, in verse 53, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And that statement so offended them that people stopped following him because they couldn't bear that Jesus was wanting them to feed on him. But this morning, don't let yourself turn away from Christ. Realize that we must feed on him. Now, he's not encouraging cannibalism here. He's saying that his, you know, in, in, in that time, everybody knew that something has to die in order for us to live, right? Um, wheat has to die for us to experience life. An animal has to die if we're going to eat it and live. They, they connected Death for life. And so Jesus is saying, I am dying so that you will live. I have to die so that you can consume me. My death physically is so that you might live spiritually. Everything you eat means something else dies. And so it's this metaphor, the bread that Jesus is giving. He's not saying we physically eat of his flesh. And that's where people have gone wrong in the ages of assuming that communion, which we're about to take in a few minutes here, they, they assume that it meant that it becomes Jesus' physical flesh and blood. Well, no, he's using a metaphor here. and He's saying that you have to feast on my sacrifice for you. You feast on my life, my life in exchange for yours. Our life rests in Jesus' obedience in this life and the life to come. The fourth and final important idea we're going to see from this miracle is that we feed on Jesus by faith. This morning, we need to feed on Jesus by faith. Every day, we must feed on Jesus by faith. See him for who he is. See that we need him to give us bread. See that he's our spiritual bread. See that he's our food of life. And then feed on him by faith. Not by works, not by earning favor, but feed on him every day. Don't think that you can go one day, one moment, without feeding on him by faith. You need him for life. So, you know, as an aside, I'm going to encourage you to pursue being in God's word regularly. Why? Not out of legalism, not to earn favor, not because it impresses him, but because you need him for life every day. Do you think you don't need to eat every day? And here's the wonderful thing. He will feed you of himself. He offers the beauty and the wonder of knowing him, of feasting on him by faith. And look in in verse 54 of John 6. Remember I told you a whole chapter is about this. And look in verse 54, it says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And here's the promise, I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's saying that your life is secure in me if you drink of me, if you eat of me. Maybe that today you feel insecure. Maybe you feel today that you're not sure about where life's going to take you. Maybe you're worried. Maybe you are about to die of an ailment. Maybe you are worried about a relationship or what the future might hold for you. And he says, if you feed on me, you don't need to worry about that because you abide in me. I am permanently keeping you. Look in verse 57. It says, as the Father, as the living Father sent me, and I live because the Father 
whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. Do you know that? I added that part, sorry. Verse 58, it says, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Just don't, don't labor for, the, for today. Don't labor for impressive things. Don't labor for what you can get. Don't labor for a perfect relationship, perfect marriage, perfect kids. Don't labor for all those things. Feast on me. He says, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. God provided manna in the Old Covenant, and God provides manna for you by faith. Go back up to verse 35. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me. Actually, I'll have the band go ahead and come up right now too. We're gonna, we're gonna receive our communion in a moment. So you can go up and prepare as I'm reading this last verse before we do. Give the ushers time to get, get ready. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty in life? Are you hungry in life? Are you aware of your need? He says, whoever comes to me won't hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. He says, verse 36, but I said to you, you've seen me and yet do not believe. All the Father gives to me will come to me. Are you concerned that somehow he's gonna reject you? He says, no, don't be concerned. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You can be sure that if you come to him in faith, he will never cast you out. It says, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And, and look in verse 39. Don't be distracted by the bread and, and the juice going out. It says in verse 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, how are we called to, to respond? We're, we're called to respond today by, by believing in Jesus, by renouncing hope in this life, renouncing hope in relationships, renouncing hope in food, renouncing hope in our jobs, renouncing hope in all this life might provide and saying, Jesus, you are the one that I need. I need you for life. You're the one who's essential. You're my bread. You're my daily subsistence. Maybe you've not placed your faith in Jesus. I encourage you to do that even now. And he came down for heaven for you and me to reveal the Father to us. Believe that what we really need is the life that he gives and to trust in him to spiritually nourish us, even if we're having a, a non-easy morning. Trust in the sacrifice of his body on your behalf. I can think of no better way to do that, no better way to, to recommit to that, to place our faith anew in, in him than to participate together in communion. So if you go ahead and stand, we'll stand together.